0: Hi, it's Monday morning. Uh, we're all and discombobulated as far as schedules are concerned. I know I am uh, just sitting here in my office, and uh, I just wrote out a whole bunch of tasks I have to get done. So I think rather than have this hanging over my head, the uh, podcast I'm going to do it now. Uh, I'm afraid it might be long, but since we're all stuck here anyway, so it doesn't even matter. That's the attitude I'm taking. Uh, so I just want to mention that today's uh, podcast is uh, being sponsored by Alex Fuchsman, who I mentioned the other day, I had a uh, great pleasure reconnecting with. I seem to be doing that, this is very nice with uh, some of these podcast people I haven't heard from many years, and uh, he asked me to uh, sponsor today's, a member of his father-in-law, well obviously I didn't know, Gary Steinberg, Gary Steinberg, his name is uh, Getzel Ben Yecheskel Mendel. And I said, Who, what's he like? He said, it was selfless, <laughs> selfless and kind. You can't say that. <laughs> you can't get better than that. So what are we supposed to say? Selfish and unkind. Selfless and kind. Very nice. I hope that, as they say, this will be a tribute to his memory, to and uh, very uh, fond to reconnect. Uh, it's the end of uh, Adar last week, and I was looking through all the names. We're all under a lot of pressure here, aren't we? You know, we, we were staying home, being uh, quarantined and all this kind of stuff. It's hard to get focused. But I saw the names of the Dvar rum and I said, that's the one I'm going to do, the last the rum. And ordinarily, I wasn't going to focus on that, but since, you know, we you find yourself in this pressure cooker, so for somehow or other, I changed my mind. The Dvar rum is a famous Lithuanian, Rabbi Avram Khanashapiro, Shapiro, Dugr Khan Shapiro. Uh, a famous Lithuanian Rav uh, of the last, gener- of 100 years ago, who ac- who's actually connected because he was like the Rebbe of uh, the Rashid of Neir Israel, my Rebbe, and uh, uh, it's, it's an interesting line, but I, I don't know if you can do justice to it. But anyway, without any further uh, introductions, uh, here's somebody who, uh, well, let, let me uh, put it this way, Long ago I once wrote something about the no to Behuda and what I said was here's someone who was like at the peak of the profession. He was in the right family, he had the right job, he wrote the right book, he married the right girl. You know, some people have that kind of life that they just touch all the uh all the bases. And in this case he even died the right death, I must say. Because he's one of the six million. Uh and in that regard, sometimes it's hard to get a hold of the, the personalities of these people people but uh, it's very interesting to me uh, because of the particular times in which they lived, especially the period before the Second World War. So, without any further ado, uh, we're dealing with the Dvora Rama. I'm David Shapiro, who's somebody's who's born in Lithuania, actually in White Russia. I mentioned the other day a lot of these people they call it lit, but uh, That's the the lit in the broad sense of uh, the Lithuanian Grand Duchy that once existed, which today would include all of White Russia. Belarus, and even a part of the Ukraine. And all Litvish. The uh, Dvarom came from a very, uh, I'd say, right family. His father was, uh, you know, one of the biggies of the 19th century. Salman Sender, Kahn, Shapiro. These people were big yichas. I think he's a grandson or something of kind Voloshner, you know. So, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, all super learners. Everybody I'm going to be talking about today is like A-plus in the learning category. The, it's a highly elitist, but elite in the good sense. I don't mean in the bad sense, in the good sense. And uh, our hero was born in 1870 and he died in World War II. So he was in about know, 75, 73 be exact, when he died. He was killed by Hitler. Now, or his death was caused by Hitler. Let's be, you'll see what I mean. Now, uh, 1870 is already the time when the uh, Litvish, she was in full uh, uh, development. And he was someone who lived through that period. But he had an interesting relationship to the yeshivas. I'll tell you exactly what I mean. The father of Zalm Sender Tana Shapiro was one of these big learners and himself was in Volashan once upon a time and, uh, uh, and married, as happened in those days, you know, some rich girl where there was a point for learning full time. And, so, and he was a big Eloi and the gone and all. There really was. And as a result, and he later on started a yeshiva of his own in Malch, And, uh, you know, from the super learner category. Let me put it this way. His personal Havrusah was Chaim Brisker. He was a Talmud of Rebais Alevi when he was in Voloshan. Get what I'm saying? You know, he was a Talmud of Soloveitchiks back then. And uh, these are big, big people, obviously. Now, uh, so the son I'm talking about, Avraham, was born in 1870. And therefore, figure in the 1880s is when he goes to learn yeshiva in Voloshan, of course where his father was, where his, his great-grandfather started the place, and that means, and he's one of the best guys there, so he's in Volosh, and in, you might say like a golden era, that I've discussed before, when the Natsiv was running it, and next to Natsiv was Rechaim Brisker, so he's one of the best students of Rechaim Brisker, just to tell you what I mean, these people at the top of the food chain, as far as the yeshiva world is concerned, right, the best Rebbein, the best Chaburis, you just imagine the talking and learning like very super level, so that would put you through your uh, 1880s. When he was, uh, I think, 21 or something like that, would be 1891. So uh, he married uh, the daughter of the Rob of Minsk, the Minsk or God of the East and Perlman, who himself was one of the big, big uh, literary rabbis of the 19th century. Very interesting person on his own. There's actually a biography of written that came in 1905, and it was kind of like a truthful biography, and you know the and it was uh, it's it's interesting. I remember showing the Chaim Shapiro long ago, <laughs> published by the Feldheim. Uh, it's called Agolomy Minsk, and like I said before, these are the people at the top of the food chain. And uh, uh, just <laughs> I can I cannot forbear to tell you the story. The Minsk Rugo Rucham Perlman was born in 1835, I think, I think, or something like that, and uh, he wasn't old when he died. And he was for a while living in Kovna, and, and Bishra Salantar tried to, to to convert him to Musser, and he wasn't able to. And after a while, Bystro Salanter gave up and said, this guy's not normal. All he does is, he knows he has no use to heart except for learning. So there's no, no point to, for him to, to be into the Musser movement, you know. No, so he's not the regular type of person. That's what I mean. So uh, this Minsker Godel knew the father of the Dvaravram very well. Uh, for certain reasons I don't want to go into. And uh, therefore, um, in he knows he was close with the father. So don't be surprised that they made a Shidduch with the son. So here you have a guy who's from a very Yichasdeg uh, family, and his father's a huge Talmud and eventually Rosh And he himself is like the best guy, one of the best guys in Boloshan. And he marries the daughter of the Minsker God. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't get better than that. And uh, uh, within a few years, this is when he was 21. Within a couple of years, the father-in-law died. The Minsk Grigado, in 1896. The same year as Yitzhak Khanan. And that means Minsk. Where my father's from there. So Minsk didn't have a rov. So listen to this. Listen closely. There are two towns. There's Minsk. Of course you've heard of Minsk. But there's another place called Smilowitz Or Smolowitz. sometimes. I know some people with the name Smolowitz, And that was a small town in Lithuania. In white Russia actually. And the Minsker guttel had been a rabbi in Smilowitz, and then later he moved up the, the chain and became the rabbi in Minsk, which was one of the biggest cities around, period. I would say Vilna, Minsk and the Kovner, like the three big uh, positions, the largest uh, Jewish communities. Here we'll be dealing today with the concept of the rabbi of a large committee, but uh, give me a minute. Now, uh, so when the Minsker guttel died, he had another son-in-law, who was uh, 10 eleven years older, his name was Rabilezar Abanovich. When the when the father-in-law became the rabbi in Minsk, the son-in-law took that job. Do you, you get what I'm saying? When the Minsk moved from Smilowitz to Minsk, see so his son-in-law, he must have been very popular, his son took the position. So uh and when the fa- father-in-law died in Minsk, the son-in-law took that position. So meaning that the Rezer Rabinovich, who I just mentioned, became the rabbi in Minsk, where he was for many, many years, a very, very famous person. He was actually my father's rabbi, And, um, uh, so the other son-in-law took the position in Shemelovitz. So the of realm, therefore, became the rabbi there. Do you get what I'm saying? It's, like, funny how it, how it moves al- along the lines. Now, um, so he was rabbi there for X number of years. You know, uh, 10, 15 years, something like that. Uh, a little more, actually. And what does it mean to be a rabbi in a relatively small town? By the way, my good friend, I know they're listening, Rabbi Shavalsky in Baltimore is, I think, if I remember correctly, they're from Shemilovitz, that family. Uh, Anyhow, so what does it mean to be a rabbi in a small town? Let's put it this way. You have a lot of time to learn if that's what you're made. (laughs) Because there's not that much to do. Uh, So either you go bored but that's not the type of person who wants to be a rabbi in a small town, where you, you spend all your time learning. There's a certain, oh, what shall I say, culture in the rabbinate of old, which is expressed in a famous statement, I remember this is very well known by the base Yitzhak, famous rabbi in Lemberg, uh, Yitzhak Shmelkes, who lived in the 19th century. And uh, I think I heard this from Rottenberg that he said like this, when I was young and I was a rabbi in a small town with nothing to do, I could sit all day and learn it, and I learned to pastor and they called me Rabbi Yitzhak. And then, when I moved to a middle-sized town, and like half my time was taken up with kahal matters, you know, because once you're in a larger community, the, the rabbi can't learn all the time. He's got to, first of all, do the basin things, and second of all, well, he's got to deal with the, you know, the Vatakashus, and the Eruv, and the mikveh and a hundred other little, and the politics. So you have much less time to learn, and then they call me Haravagon, so-and-so. And when I became the rabbi in Lemberg, which was a huge community, and uh, Hill and Manners took up all of his time, and he had no time to learn. Now he called me Haravagon, Roshagadol, Yen, Roshkabahag, and all the rest of it, which means that the amount of uh, time of learning available to somebody is the inverse proportion to the size of the community. Does that make sense? So when the drive room was around, I he could learn up a storm the way he did, and he eventually, but he obviously clearly wanted to make a, 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 a it was ambitious, nothing wrong, nothing wrong, and, uh, he wanted to make a shame, and therefore he published his famous uh, uh, Safer in 1906. So, it was he 35 years old? The Dvarvar on Volume 1. Uh, now, it's unusual because, as I've said a number of times, in the Lithvish world, there were some who published Shalos and Shubas, but not many. As opposed, for example, the Hasidic, especially the Hungarian, the Galaxian, everybody, especially in Hungary, everybody's anybody, A category, B category, C category, is going to try to publish Shalos and Shubas. That's how it goes. But not in litab. And uh, one of the things you do when you put out Charles and is you're putting yourself up for peer review and, uh, and exposing yourself to public criticism. Not everybody's uh, uh, comfortable with that, but he clearly was. And you might say it's just another safer. He got lucky. The Dvaravram uh, hit hit the charts, and it made a huge rosham because it's very lundish, and it's like one of the classic uh, shalosh and shuvos form in which you don't have any short answers. You know, he explains. And and makes his argument based on shots and post game, and so it became like a real, real classic. And he himself, I gotta, I saw this. Wait a minute, let me find this here. This is really cute. He himself, when he published the second volume, uh, says, This is the introduction to the second part of the Dvar He says, Baruch Anosin, I've called something like that. Uh, uh, six years ago he says this writing nineteen twelve or so I published uh, a volume called I didn't do it for arrogance okay was i meaning I didn't do this to to show off Lois I didn't imagine Sar that my book would hit the charts that it would cause a storm in a positive sense. Among the learners, and that it would really get popular in the Lum de I only intended to have a small portion in the pantheon. I love that. You know, if you publish a safer, especially if you publish a safer, you have like a niche in history. You get it? You have a niche in history. Maybe the book will be more popular, less popular, but at least they'll say so and so published a safer, and you've added your your uh, little bit to the history of Torah literature, which is very uh, like most of us don't do that, you know so that's all I wanted, okay I like that I intended simply to add one drop to the Yama Talmud <laughs> okay, uh, isn't that a nice expression and I just want to have something like you say a memento that I was here once this is what you call honorable ambition, there's nothing wrong with that uh, I wanted to be something, because obviously he learned up a storm, and he wanted something to show for him. Uh, because after all, I threw a lot of my kakas into it. I didn't want it to be good for nothing. I didn't want it to end up like a lot of manuscripts that people have written over the years and never published them, and they went to nothing. But the good Lord saw how hard I worked, and he rewarded me with fame. I just, just uh, You don't usually see this in a Sefer. And the good Lord gave me more than, you know, whether I deserved it or not, a big fame, more than I imagined. And uh, it, like I say, it hit the charts among the, the learners and the Gedolim. And everybody's learning it and arguing on it and so forth. And he goes on to say that many criticize him, many don't criticize him. That's what an author wants. You understand, if you have the real thing, what you want is that people should say, wow, this is Givaldic. and, uh, you know, I agree with this, I don't agree with this, and so on and so forth. And so the result is that uh, it became a storm, and everybody was talking about the Dvar of Ram. This is 1906. This is the golden era just before the First World War hit. The yeshivas were storming away. You had a lot of Tommy to come running around. Now there was a lot of non-From stuff going on. Also, this is the year of the Haskalah and Zionists, and no question about that. But there's a very large uh, relative. I'm using relative terms. Very large world, From world, Learned world, and he got lucky that when he's 35, he wrote a sefer that 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 uh, you know made it in there. Now, if you ever look at the Dvar Ram, I wish I could say that I, I I learned more than I have. I've seen it, you know, when I was in Yeshiva, and from time to time, frankly, when you do on a Shabbos, I got a Godel speech or something, I sometimes look in there. He's famous for a lot of things in the Lubavitch world. If you've ever been in a regular shiva, they're going to quote that in the shir. Uh, and I've seen it, uh, you know, quoted from here and there from time to time. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, what do he you called? You know, he's got the famous thing with the mila Bismana, mila Shalobismana. I saw this once online. Somebody quoted it; it caught my attention. Uh, you know, one of those cases, which if you have two babies, which one do you do? The one which is, uh, today's the eighth day, or the one that, that was postponed? Which one do you do first? That's a famous child, a lot of pennies back and forth. He says, to, he says that you first give the birth to the one that, that's late, that's not the eighth day, right? Because uh, even though ordinarily due reason, like us, and you know there are arguments to say that you should do the one that who's, that today's the eighth day, but he says the other way around. The one, who, the one who's the eighth day, you can do later in the day. You don't have to do it right away, right? In the morning. Uh, you know that you've been at Briss's, where they don't do it in the morning. Could be a reason. Me, myself, and I. Not just the other day, had a case in my uh, congregation where um, the mother is going for the chemotherapy. So she, if they did it in the morning, she couldn't come because that's when she's having the chemo. Uh, so they did it in the afternoon, where where she could attend. You know, a grandmother. Why not? Uh, you can do that. Um. On the other hand, someone who's already late is an Incha because the baby wasn't healthy or something like that. They had to put it off. So every minute, every day is, you know, like your lanase. So you should get that done first. That seems to be the kind of an argument. You know, by the way, many years ago I was in Russia. and No, I was in Russia. I was at a conference in Israel and Professor Gafni. this is long ago when they saw the refuseniks and stuff like that, and we were talking war stories, and uh, you know, because I had been with the refuseniks back in the eighties and all this stuff. And this professor Gobney was a Talma professor. He said that he was at a bris. I forget of who, some big refusenik from guy. And the long and the short of it is, they made the bris in, in 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 Russia, maybe secretly, whatever, at twelve o'clock. And the guy was uh was uh depressed because they couldn't do it in the morning for whatever reason. And he said, you know, Abraham did the first bris be'etsa myomazeh in the middle of the day. <laughs> just interesting. Anyway, uh, and while it's there, so incidentally, the, the Dvar Avram says that this uh, tshuva of mine was uh, criticized uh, in the best sense, in other words, from the intellectual perspective by others. And in the second volume of the Dvar Ram, he says, you know, I printed all the uh, critiques and my responses to the critiques. And it's actually very interesting. In other words, the best compliment from the intellectual perspective that uh any work of scholarship can do is to be taken seriously by your uh, contemporaries and that they should respond to it and you of course have a chance to respond back and that's exactly that's exactly what he did. And um if you look at the first couple she was in the second volume of the Divine Rum where he's responding to it. So uh he has a whole thing here to Gershon Edelstein. I must be a grandfather or great grandfather the current Gershon Edelstein obviously in Bonabra. And uh, again we're talking about the fact that you should you should um you know uh what's the right word you should do the mitzvah that's uh pressing on you first that uh, the violation of it is uh happening every second before you do the mitzvah that you're not so pressing and he says over here cuz i have it highlighted hinei this is in the seven This it's just cute Hini lahas ki ma shimati the flob shim we throw barad and shlita he's I heard herdsah uh, I heard a ha'ora a, 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 a from somebody named Yusroel Meir Of course, you know him as the Chavetz Chaim, where he says, Ham, de oni Shabbos, This is the old school where people would have uh, anim, literally anim, for Shabbos guests. That's the right thing to do. Now, we're not talking about an American ani, we're talking about a European ani, where the guy's literally hungry. So you should start the meal right away. And it's like, you know, you, if, 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 if you, uh, it's like Tzedakah, you know, if you don't do it right away, you're over in Baal and, Tachar. Uh, and basically, skip all the, the smearas, you know. And it's a good word. Uh, but people don't do that. Uh, so basically, it's like the story, it's a very famous story of Yisrael Hunter. Um, very well known where he came to somebody's house, I think I told the story once on a podcast, uh, the, the, I don't want to spend time with it, the rich guy invited Michelle Salanter somewhere, and he immediately went through the meal, one, two, three, you know, skipped the the Zemiras, ate the food, you know, very quickly, so that the uh, cook, who's, a, who's an almanus, should be able to go home and spend time, Shabbos, with her family. Uh, you know, in other words, it's like, what do they call them, the Sharm? Mishkala Hasidus. You know, Mishkala Hasidus. It's a, you, know, you don't go and sing Shalom Aleichem when somebody else is hungry. And he has a reason why people don't do it. I'm just saying, it's, it's interesting. Uh, he's very famous. Advair just off the top of my head for the Dina Malchus Adin. He has a lot to say on the subject Deen of Dina Malchus Adin. I remember talking about what it it's is it based on social, uh, social uh, convention, which is a kind of a Kenyan, or uh, is it, uh, you know, um, what's the right word, like a Hefker-based, you know, another martial law, the malchus, you know, owns everything. They, they have the right to apply, like, the the the, uh, the confiscation powers. They're an inherent in every Malkus. Uh, look, we're right now in the coronavirus. The government's doing all kinds of stuff. There are states where they're shutting stuff down, and if they want, they might go to the point of locking people up and taking things away from people, and they can do it. It's because we call it a public health emergency. Well, I think most of us agree to that. Unless you're the most unreconstructed libertarian that ever existed, uh... And uh, we agree to this because when there's an emerging situation, the Malchus can do it. You know, he, he discusses those, those kinds of things. Um, I remember, you know, he has whew, from the Book of Ezra, you know, whoever doesn't come three days, the Yacham Anyway, it's a whole long thing on the Dinah Makhuzina. I remember there was a very nice uh, discussion of this in that book by Professor... the guy that did the academic book back in the 70s on Dinah Makhuzina, Professor Shiloh. Right, who covered the whole Dinamakhuzadin, the whole history of it, in very thorough way back in the 70s. I remember my student Gideon, who's now in Houston, he, he was nice enough to get it for me when he was in Yeshiva. I don't know where I put the book, whether somebody stole it or not. It's a very good book. Anyway, the Dravram hit the charts. And uh, he was Zocha, therefore, to get a lot of uh, feedback. And, uh, and then he published that as, as a main part of the second volume of the Drai Rum couple years later, which made even more chashev. It's a little bit like the Nodi of Yehuda. The first part of the Nod is Yehuda is a chivas. The Madura Tinyona contains a lot of responses to people who critiqued. So like I said before, if you're uh, thin-skinned, you, you're, you're bothered by criticism. If you're the opposite of thin-skinned, if you're real lambdan, you welcome the criticism and you engage with the critics. That's what Divar Rum did. And between these two, he became known throughout the world as not just the rabbi of another small little Lithuanian or white Russian town because there were a lot of those, but somebody epispecial. special, and was on the basis of this, plus the fact that he was a smart cookie, he knew I was a diplomatic, knew how to get along with people, um, he got the big prize, he became the Kovna Rav, in other words, the city of Kovna, Kaunas, elected him as the rabbi, after he and the, and the son of Rizal so the you know, Jewish Spector made it famous, he was there for, I don't know, 30, 40 years, you know, he died in uh, about 30 years, or, or a little more, and uh, I think he made Kavna famous in the Jewish world. And then his son, Rabbi khan Spector, died. His son took over after him. And he died, I think, in 1910. And then they were looking for another one, so they took this Dvar Avram. So basically, the, the, the community of Kavna, which is a new community. There was a time when Jews were not allowed to live there. I think it dates from the early 1800s under the Tsarist regime. Uh, it's not what you think, you know and uh, so they they had somebody, and then the Son, and then the Devar Ram. So they had three or four heavy hitters. And this is how many know him as the Chief Rabbi of Kovna from 1913 or so down to the Holocaust, which means he had the misfortune of living through World War I, and the misfortune, obviously, of living through World War II. Uh, He didn't live through World War II, he died in World War II. So here comes just something very interesting, because first of all, uh, the person we're talking about Obviously, it was a a a, a, a plus Talmachakim. That's number one, you know. It's so he was fitting to take the position that used to be held by Yitzhak Chanan. That's number one. Number two, he was a, a person who clearly, had he wanted to, would have become Rosh Hashim, But that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to become Rabbanus. So I talked about that last week with the Orach uh, Chayim. Some people are built for A, and some people are built for B. Once in a while, you get somebody who's an A and a B, correct? But in the modern period, not so much. So in the in the old old days, very often the person was rashi was at the same time was the rav of Basin. But the communities were very small in the old old days. Remember that, you know. So it's possible to run both both shows. I mean, like uh, you know, uh, uh, you know. Then, well, the Nederbeeter is not a good example because they had a ten eleven thousand people. It's a big community, but he was a superman. But a lot of these other people, a well, community of two thousand three thousand people, something like that. So you could be the rav of a Kehillah on the one hand at the same time have a yeshiva. But by the time you get to the modern era, for a whole bunch of reasons, part of which is quantity and size. It's not really possible, if you think about it, to devote uh, the adequate amount of time to being the rabbi of a community of thousands and thousands of people, on the one hand, and at the same time be Rosh yeshiva efficiently. And so the the, the two uh, posts kind of bifurcated. And uh, I think it's just interesting. Now, um... There are, ex- there are exceptions, but usually not. And the Rome would be a classic example of somebody who said, I'm interested in the Rabonis, in the highest sense of the Rabonis. And I think under him, you'd say the, the Rabonis was a, when, uh, conducted at a very high level because, uh, let me put it this way, Kovno is an important city. Uh, but it's also true that Lithuanian jewelry, a place like uh, Kovno, Really was impacted by modernity, and already in the 1800s, the time of the Kolchanim, the in the 20th century, there was a heavy non-from element in the population. So here you are, you're a rov of a community of 20,000 people, something like that. Uh, at times, maybe 25,000. That's a lot by the old standards, and a lot of the Kehillah, you know, isn't from. And on the other hand, they elected you as rabbi, meaning you are the rov. But what does it mean to be a rabbi of a community in which, like, I don't know the proportions, roughly half are from and half are not from. Like, how do you manage that? Here we run into the fascinating phenomenon, of what we call the Eastern European killers, particularly in the 20th century. I could talk about the 19th century, but I'm going to confine my remarks to the 20th century. You know, how do you uh, straddle the fence that on the one hand, you're the rabbi successfully, you know, the old-fashioned love for the from element, so you handle the, all the things in the shtad, you know, the kashras and the and the, and, the, and like I said, Bordeir, and the mikvah and that kind of stuff, and the basins and all the kind of business, and you do and the lima torah and the shirim and all that stuff of not one shul but ten or twenty or thirty shuls, you know, large and small, uh, but the other at the same time you have a very large proportion, maybe half, maybe more, I don't know, maybe more, in which is not doesn't want to be my Shabbos, That's the end of it. You understand? You you can't stop them. You can't make them. What do you do? And a lot of people are not misogled for that. And you had to be able to be a tightrope walker. Isn't that right? And uh, it wasn't easy and sometimes very, uh, the opposite of easy. But the conditions in Eastern Europe are very fascinating because, whereas in Western Europe or Central Europe, there were different types of Judaism. There's Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox. And so the, the non-from very often are organized in parallel forms of Judaism, in which case you end up with a situation like you have in America. You know, who says being gay is, 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 is ju- ju- Judaically incorrect? Uh, maybe one group holds this Judaically correct. Who says driving in, on, on Saturday or something like that is Jewishly improper? Maybe they hold it Jewishly proper, and so forth and so on. Uh, as opposed to that, what you had in Eastern Europe was what we call in Israel the phenomenon of Chilonim which is a different thing, right? Achiloni. There was not another form of Judaism. Uh, the Jewish religion, everybody conceded, was Orthodox. The only thing is, some people don't believe in religion. Period. That's all. They don't believe in religion. You know, it's the 20th century. Science has taught us history and other things have taught us that religion is baloney. And therefore, we're not into it. But on the other hand, those who want to believe in it, the Orthodox is the way to go. So, uh Covenant is like a perfect example of this. Lithuania in general, and uh, therefore, the Dvar Ram was there for almost uh 1913. So, you know, almost uh, 30, well, he actually was there 30 years, right? He was there 30 years, that's a long time, uh, trying to, what's the right word, you know, preside successfully as a Rav over a very, very gated community. And uh, as time, you know, he became probably rabbi in 1913. In 1914 came First World War. And I don't know the details, but the Russians evacuated all the Jews out of Kovna. That I know. So, what happened to your Kahel? It got destroyed overnight because the Tsarist armies uh, were extremely cruel to the Jews. Uh, kicked all the Jews out except for a small number. This is when the Slobodka and the other Yishuv, Slobodka is, uh, is in Kovna. They all had to run away into the interior of Russia to Minsk. Um, so, here you're in a Kovna, and all of a sudden your, your Kahel is gone. Now, not all of them were gone, most of them. And in 1915, which is within a year of the beginning of the war, less than a year, the Germans conquered a Lithuanian Covenant and occupied it for a couple of years, from 1915, 16, 17, 18. So I think he, I think he was there during that time, if I remember correctly. Chaim Eisei ran away, but he stayed. And um, so you had to you know, put up with the German military occupation, which wasn't simple. Now, it's not Hitler at all, not at all. Uh, and believe it or not... The uh, Germans, relatively speaking, showed respect for the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. And uh, they even reopened the Slovak Yeshiva part of it, uh, under German auspices. There was this German rabbi. I did a, a, a series on this last summer, I think, in uh, videos. There was a German rabbi, I forget the name. Um, he was like a military chaplain. And he was able to persuade the German authorities to uh, reopen the Jewish community and and uh, the Jewish uh, what you called uh, yeshiva, Sabaq Yeshiva, and that kind of thing. All I can say is that these are tem- tempestuous years. They're obviously not what he had in mind when he became the rabbi in 1930, when he thought it would be just like the old days. And uh, he faced a radically new situation. And um, and by the way, there was huge revolutions going on in Chinuch. I mean, to, towards the left. Uh, some of these German rabbis who were from guys, uh, opened what we would call Hirsch-type schools, particularly for girls, in Kovna. And um, they intended it for it to be like a term, but that's not what happened. Uh, As soon as the war was over and the German rabbis left, the, shall I say, the Zionists and the secular Zionists, that kind of thing, took over these schools. And Kovna, throughout Lithuania, had a very heavy dose of secular Zionist Chinuch until the Holocaust. So, I hope I'm not losing you, but let's put it this way. By the time you get to 1918, the, the war's over the end of the year, uh, a whole bunch of wars then broke out in Eastern Europe, including Lithuania. Not many people are aware of this. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that World War I lasted from 1914 to 1918, but in Eastern Europe it went for another four years under different circumstances. So if you're in a place called Kovna Lithuania it's a war zone for the next couple of years until 1922 because Lithuania was fighting with Poland it was fighting with Soviet Russia and with other places and it was crazy going on over there was it was, a, it was a, a time of great uh, um, destruction And here you are the Roman Kovna the, the The Lithuanians are a name of a certain ethnic group, a national group who had not had their own national identity for hundreds of years. They've been ruled by Poland and then by Russia. And now in 1918, 1919, they were able to break out of that and establish their own independent Lithuanian state, which they called the Republic of Lithuania. But a third of it was, t- it was gobbled up by Poland. Uh, and so for the next 20 years, during the 1920s and 1930s, um, there was a country called Lith- the Republic of Lithuania, and next to it was a country called the Republic of Poland. And the Republic of Poland, without going to too many details, the Republic of Poland uh, bit off about a third or a fourth of Lithuania. Nothing, Lithuanians could do anything about it. So, uh, and there was a war going on for 20 years over this, a Cold War. And uh, the main place was Vilna. So Vilna is in the eastern part of Lithuania, but it's part of Poland. So, there's a place now called the the, the uh, Republic of Lithuania, and another place called the, the Republic of Poland. Most of the Litvaks, or many, many, many of them, lived in Poland. You hear what I'm saying? So if you lived in Vilnius, like, or Chaim or Grzentsk, people like that, or pff, many of the famous Litvichy Shivas were not in the country called the Republic of Lithuania, There's something called the Republic of Poland. Uh, pff, Mir, um, I don't know, Comenetz, uh, uh, you know, Rodin, uh, you know, all those type of places. A lot of the Shivas that you, you, you've heard about, actually were located in something called the Republic of Poland because of the Mishogun politics, and the wars going on over there. So the Republic of Lithuania was a separate place, which actually you couldn't go into Poland because of the war between the two of them, and the capital city of Lithuania became Kovna Kaunas. So the Dvar became the Rav, as a result of these circumstances, of the largest community in the Republic of Lithuania, and therefore he was de facto sort of like the uh, chief rabbi of the country. Uh, and he could do it because he was very diplomatic, very smart uh, cookie. And um, he was the type that didn't make any mistakes. In t- you know, let, let me put it this way. He never gave a bad interview in the press or never did anything at all that would be other than um, positive or honorable and so forth. And this is the way things were in the 1920s and 30s when he really came onto his own. So he was now the governor of uh, this is a very interesting period in history, which is not so well known at all. Not so well known at all. And uh, uh, so, this is when he reached Malokha you might say. And for example, he came to America and visited a place in the world together with these rabbinic de- delegations to try to raise money for the Lithuanian Jews and the yeshivas over there. The Republic of Lithuania, so I hope I'm not losing you, which was a, a separate country. Uh, had about 130,000 Jews, something like that, not so many. And the Republic of Lithuania had like uh, three yeshivas, that's it. You know, it was, it was a, a Sobotka and it was a Tels And, uh, and then this new guy, the Panovich Arov, they called him, who you and I know is a started a new yeshiva in Panovich. It was like a new thing. And that's about it. Maybe it was a little more in Kelm, whatever small places, but there weren't a huge yeshiva world in the Republic of Lithuania in the 1920s and 30s. Although Slobodka and them, you know, they 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 were important institutions, obviously, but it's not like you have today with thousands of people and all that. Quite the opposite. And uh, you had a very, very, very interesting environment. Uh, now, um, uh, I'm thinking, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read you something. Ordinarily, I don't do it, but what the heck, we, we're all stuck here anyway. A couple years ago in 2017, I went on a a crazy trip to Eastern Europe with a couple of guys uh, from TNEC. And we started out in Kovno and we went to a few places over there. And then we went after that to Belarus and then to Ukraine and we ended up in Hungary. So, in a a matter of two, three days. Uh, So, when I came back, I wrote an article for the Wearaway and When magazine over here about my my trip to Lithuania and I got I really got into it um and I talked about the situation the Jewish politics in um Lithuania in the Republic of Lithuania uh in the 20s and 30s when the drive Rome was was the big person over there and uh I think what I'm going to do is read you from what i wrote over there it's a little bit extensive but like i said before what do you care and uh i mean you can always turn it off and i think it's very informative and i don't think most people are familiar with all this so uh, that's what i'm gonna that's what i'm gonna take to do this is a segment from a larger article um so let me just read uh this uh, segment Here we are, so here I go. So here we are in the interwar years, the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, when the Jews of the Republic of Lithuania tried to organize themselves to get their act together vis-a-vis the government vis-a-vis themselves. Most of the remaining Jewish landmarks one encounters today in Covenant date from this era. Uh, On both fronts, success was problematic. The Lithuanian government was not crazy about the Jews creating a state within a state which is what the Zionists were demanding, and which was something Lithuania had agreed to at the Versailles conferences after the First World War. But agreeing to something and implementing it are two different things. Most of the Rabbonim, interestingly, opposed this uh, approach of banging the table and demanding ethnic rights and privileges. The Rabbonim preferred a more modest, behind-the-scenes approach, requesting respectfully, politely, and persistently, the Zionists branded the rabbinim as Uncle Toms, and the tone was set for tempestuous intra Jewish politics. This is actually a fascinating, though relatively unknown, chapter in Jewish history the politics of the Jews in the Republic of Lithuania. Here, during the interwar years, you had something that never existed before a genuine Jewish democracy, with all the tumult. That accompanies it. You see, in the past, the Jewish people always governed themselves by a kind of aristocratic oligarchy. The rich did all the voting and office holding, occasionally with a few scholars. It was the old conservative theory of voting whereby only those who paid a certain level of taxes to the Kehillah should have the right to vote and hold office, since it would be the actual taxpayers who would have to fund any new program. In his day, Should have the deciding voice. You see, if a person held office, he would vote. If a poor person held office, he would vote for all kinds of programs. After all, it was not he who would foot the bill. This is indeed a leading cause of our national debt today of over 20 trillion. On the other hand, oligarchies are selfish, concerned about their own economic interests and not the public's, and Jewish oligarchies over the centuries. Did much harm to broad to hurt Jewish, to broader Jewish interests. After the First World War, the spirit of genuine democracy swept Europe. Had not Woodrow Wilson, the American President, proclaimed the war of World War One, I, I mean, as a war to make the world safe for democracy, Lithuania passed a law calling for Jewish national elections to a Nationalrat, which means a national Jewish council, which would represent the Jews. The Jewish people to the Lithuanian government, and which might possibly legislate matters of Jewish life and culture. I mean, this council would have the right to tax the Jews for Jewish purposes, and the Jewish public would have the right to vote them in or out of office. It seemed that the glorious old days of the Vada Barozzas, when Eastern European Jewry governed itself to a remarkable degree, were about to return to an improved, genuinely democratic fashion. And these were heady times for Lithuanians Jews. The problem is you can't bring back the old days. In the old days, everybody was from. But by 1920, Lithuanian Jewry was split along many lines, including religious versus secular. At the beginning of the state, right, there weren't Jewish democratic elections, just roughly democratic ones. And these revealed the interesting religious contours of Lithuanian Jewry. Three big parties emerged. Out of 101 Jewish deputies, the secular Zionists won t- 61. The Achdus, which was the Aguda and Mizrahi combined together, won 54. So that's 101 versus 54. Uh, I'm sorry, 61 versus 54. And the Volkspartei, which was secular and anti Zionist, won 26. So um, that's more than 101, but however, however the numbers are. Thus, you see, the Frum got a big part of the vote, but certainly not the majority. So I remind you, it was 61 non non-Frum to 54 Frum. But this was the change. As soon as the Nationalrat convened, sharp differences broke out between the Zionists and the Achdis party, which again, I remind you, was the Agudah combined with the Mizrahi. Uh, now, the debates were at a high level, but they revealed what we know today. In modern times, the Frum and the non frum see Judaism and Jewish in fundamentally different ways. There were stormy, if eloquent, debates over Chinuch, over the very purpose of a Kehillah, over the content of Jewish culture, over all sorts of fundamentals. The two leading protagonists were Shimshon Rosenbaum, famous person from the non and the Panevish for the frum. Indeed, it was at this time that uh, the 34-year-old Panevish jumped into politics with both feet. Uh, Now, Within a short time, secular elections, meaning elections in the national parliament, were held, and here, too, the Jewish parties competed to win seats in the Lithuanian parliament. Here things were trickier, as very few Jews, especially from Jews, spoke or even understood Lithuanian, which was the language of the parliament, because it used to be part of Russia. They spoke Russian. But the main thing was for the Jewish population to elect Jews of whatever stripe, so that there should be some Jewish representation of Jewish interests in the national parliament. There were four parliaments that were elected democratically in Lithuania between 1920 and 1926, and then the fascism took over, there were no more elections. The first parliament had six Jews, the second had seven, the third had three Jews, and the fourth had seven. The question for the Jews was who to elect. At first, the various Jewish groups tried Achtis, I mean, you know, unity. In other words, the, the, the Jewish parties, all of them, the Frum and the Not collectively drew up a list of candidates for parliament that would include members from each of the three groups. Now, here's something you don't find anywhere else outside of Lithuania. In Poland, this would be impossible for the Frum and the Not to go together. The Achtus party, in other words, the Frum party, got two seats in the parliament. You know, in other words, it's part of the arrangement that everybody voted for the Frum list. And they had find from people who could speak Lithuanian, and they only found the the Rav uh, Popol from Marienpol, and so on and so forth. Uh, Well, I'll just read it to you. Uh, Marienpol was a city of 100,000, and they had 6,500 Jews of all stripes, so it was no shtetl, and they had an active Zionist element, and they had a Hebrew all-day school, meaning a secular school, and whoever was the Rav of that community had to be a diplomat and politician. That's what I'm trying to get across to you, that to be a Roman in Lithuania or those places back in the 20s and 30s, you had to be able to, uh, you know, somehow or other, accommodate the from and the non-from, okay? Uh, We don't have in America mixed communities of from and non-from. We're a community of faith, but that's about it. In Lithuania, things were different. There really was a Kehillah, a formal community composed of every Jew. That was the proper way it was seen. If there were bitter fights between Jews of different Ashkafas, let the fights begin. Now, you cannot understand the Litvich or Rabbanov of 100 years ago unless one understands the social reality. I mean, the rabbis of actual Jewish communities, formal communities in the Republic of Lithuania. The communities were, as I keep saying, composed of disparate groups, and common ground was hard to discover. The uh, Rabbi Puffel, who was the of representative, seemed to agree and supported the di- Zionist day school, even though it wouldn't happen today. He had to dance on eggs. Rov can only push so far. On the other hand, the non-from could also push so far, you know. Uh, and it's important to understand, especially for us today, opposition to Zionism, Allah Satmar, was impossible in the Republic of Lithuania. The Jewish masses were intensely Zionistic. So if you're the devour Rum and all the rest of it, you, know, you can't be quote unquote anti-Zionistic. He was in the Aguda. But the Aguda in Lithuania had to be, what shall I say? More to the left, that might not be the right words. Now I'm speaking about the Republic of Lithuania. Those who were in Poland was a different story. So even the religious in Lithuania were generically Zionist. They supported Aliyah, building a Jewish future in Palestine, reviving Hebrew as a spoken language, founding a state or as much of a state as the British would allow. Now these same religious Jews were not in favor of the secular and atheistic manifestations of Zionism as it unfolded, both in Lithuania and and, and Palestine. So the difference among the religious was that the Agudists were intensely opposed to these manifestations of non-frumkite and would not join the Zionist movement in any form. The Mizrahi people were moderately opposed to these phenomena and were prepared to remain as members of the Zionist movement. To many Jews in the country, these were just fine lines. They felt they had more in common with their pharaoh-religious Jews as not. And, uh... You know, therefore, you had a situation in Lithuania where, uh, what shall I tell you? Um, people were members of both. They, they were card-carrying members. They had a and end the Mizrahi at the same time. Uh, you had that. Now, we're, we're, I can't, uh, in this podcast, get across the complexity so well. There's two types of Litvish situations. One is in the Republic of Lithuania, and the other one was in, in Poland, where you had the Chavez Chaim, Chaim Meiser, and Bokan Chaim Wasserman, people like that who were much more intensely opposed to Zionism than that. Uh, and, uh, oh, this article is too long. It's a shame. All I can tell you is that, um, I, I do want to share this over here. How uh, should I do this? It's just too long. That's a shame. There was a lot of fights back and forth. And uh, I would say the Froom didn't play their political cards very correctly. And by the time it's all over, the uh, Akhtis party got wiped out electorally. Um, you know, because they didn't, they didn't play the cards right. And the Kovnerov was trying to hold him back from the negative phenomenon, the Dvaram. If they would have listened to him, then the Agoda, shall we say, would have still, still kept their representation in the in the parliament. And uh, But they didn't listen to him. You know, uh, the more extremists, shall we say, uh, did it. And uh, just off the top of my head uh for example there was no base yaakov movement in lithuania uh you understand there was no base yaakov instead what they had was called Yavne. okay yavna is just interesting uh, that's what they called it Yavne, and it's yavna for boys yavna for girls so if you want to understand what it's like to be jewish in lithuania in the 20s and 30s you basically had um two main school systems for jews and then you had the regular public schools, uh, the two main systems. There was the non-FROM one, I'll call it khiloni, and that's called Tarbut. Tarbut, right? Tarbut. Um, and they had a whole system of schools, 100 and some schools all across Lithuania, including high schools and even, uh, what we say today, you know, community college level, you, you get a BA. They did gymnasia, and uh, it was run very well, just not from... Um, and so everything was Ivrit Bivrit, and uh, you know, they had a very fine uh, secular Jewish education, as well as a secular education b'cholal. If you graduate from there, you go to college. And uh, they were intensely Zionist, as you can imagine, and uh, but they weren't from. Uh, you know, the the Bible was taught as a history book, and frankly, not as a history book, as a book of legends. The old Shalag uh, commentary at the bottom, which is a great, it's just treif. Um, and they had uh, the teachers' institutes and uh, national organizations and whatever. And a lot of parents liked it because the kids were very well-educated in these schools. In Hebrew, now, the Frum had to compete with this. So the Devar of Rome and the Talzorov and people like that, they got together. So, yes, listen, you know, you got to match them. Because if you simply insist on, uh, what should I say, you know, just old-fashioned cheder with uh, no limonical uh, whatsoever, you won't get any parents, you know, you, 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 you lose the battle. And uh, therefore, it was a very fine line that uh, the Dvar and people like that had to walk in the 1920s and 30s. But they, they fought the battle. And so they set up a whole parallel system called Yavna. So in any town, there was always the, the fights. You have a, a Tarbut school, you have a Yavna school. And a lot of times you have both. And uh, for girls, for example, the, uh, the Yavna um, uh, network... Was run on a very high academic level. It's just very interesting, you know, a very high academic level in the secular as well as the Jewish. And uh, let, me, uh, let me, let me, let uh, me read something over here. Uh, let's see over here. What evolved in Lithuania? I'm reading now something I wrote. What evolved in Lithuania? What, uh, here we go. What should be the religious day schools' attitude towards Zionism? I mean, religious Zionism. In the Republic of Poland, the Litvish Agoda Bali Hashkafa, the like Hanna Wasman articulated very strong anti-Zionist and anti-Mizrahi Hashkafa. But in the Republic of Lithuania, that would go over like a lead balloon. No religious parent in Lithuania with the slightest Zionist leanings of any sort would, uh, you know, send his children to schools that taught that. So what evolved was Yavna, for boys and for girls. There were about 50 schools altogether. Uh, though the leaders the das Tar of Yavna were from the Agoda. The schools were formerly for students from both Agoda and Mizrahi families, which did not happen in Poland. There you had two separate school networks. Now, most people don't realize there was no Beis Yaakov. As I said before, there was Yavna. The secular studies were high level because they had to compete with the with the Tarbut. But the limude Kodesh was also at a pretty high level for girls who went to the 12th grade and for boys um, went to the 12th grade. And by the way, for the girls, it was in Ivrit or Ivris. For the boys, it was up to the eighth grade, and then they hoped you'd go to Yeshiva. But there were many boys who didn't want a high school with zero secular studies. Sounds like America. And so Yavna created in Kovna under the auspices of Dvaram a from high school for boys who wanted a secular education with plenty of So I would just roughly equivocate this with you know with a Turo, you know, something like that. So see this type of person the was. Instead of the normal Lithuanian eight-year high school program with a BA, the boys' program took ten years to accommodate more Gemaras. And again, the classes were in Ivris except for gamar, which had to be in Yiddish. You know that you can understand. Uh, and all the classics of Western literature were taught, but in Hebrew translation: Shakespeare, Tolstoy, Victor Hugo, Deacon, uh, Charles Dickens, all in Ivris, right? And uh, listen, they all imagined that they would move to Israel. The Rabbonim outside of Lithuania were surprised at the Lithuanian Yavna school system which seemed so modern. But the Chavitz Chaim, even though he lived in Poland, famously remarked when he was asked, how could Tel set up such a modern Yavna high school and even a Yavna teacher's college for girls headed by a Mizrahi guy, Holtzberg? The Chavitz Chaim famously said, if the Tel is sanctioned, and he knows what he's doing. Which means the Chavitz Chaim understood that every Medina is unique, and the main thing was that the schools were under uh, Das Torah, which they certainly were. The main Das Torah in, in Lithuania, the schools were all under the Dvarav Rum, the Covenrov, the Talzorov, and the Ponevishrov. They passed on all the day-by-day basis, r- different rulings for schools in different communities in different situations, and um, this is what you ended up with. So I'm describing a world which was somewhat unique, especially in the inter, inter- interwar period, and there's a really interesting speech by the Rub of Alixart, uh, Bar Harwitz who was a very famous, uh, you know, it was a Sabbat Rosh Hashiva, and he gave a speech to a, a, a Yavna Convention of Girls. And he says as follows, Yeshna metzleinu shnei mine chinuch. We have two types of chinuch out there. Listen closely. Chinuch shel Torah, ve chinuch shel Charediyut. Ba Ashkenaz, be Latvia, u Europe, Europe maravid in the other countries, chayim chinuch shel Charediyut the Kinoch is 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 on Frumkite. I should Limonatora in a man Bimerkas. So the center is not the Limanatora symbol, like the her school, they, you know, they didn't put too much time in Gemara, but the main thing is the Frumkite. Po Balita, but here in Lithuania, Hayutomilchinocheno Chinek Shal Toro, O Mehatoro, Banu El Ayira, El Kharidiut. Gam Yavnincerit, Beshviel Kinoch Shal Toro, even the girl system is mainly on the Torah. So our main emphasis is on the intellectual side of the Torah, and that, Shememela, bring it with it, the, the, uh, the fromkite. It, it's just uh, very interesting. Uh, uh, I could go on and on and on. It's all interesting stuff, but I don't want to do it too much. Simply say, if you want to understand who the Dvar Ram was during these years, he's someone who had to be a kabarnit. He had, to, he had to wear uh, different hats. Uh, one, he's a uh, rabbi of a mixed community, from and not from. Uh, the other one, he's a post of course. Another one, he's, he's a pro-from activist um, because he's pushing, obviously, to the degree possible, the from agenda. But then again, what's the shot? The from agenda? Are you talking about the Are you talking to the Mizrahi? There's no question that for him, the main from agenda would be to try to advance the cause of the yeshivas. You see? And that usually is associated with the Agoda. But on the other hand, you can't be super Agoda and anti-Zionist if you're living in Lithuania in the 1920s and 30s. I don't think most people um, understand this. And um, here, let me stop this for a second. Hi, I had to uh, interrupt that for a while. So I talk about the, the Devour Rum in the 1920s and 30s. And... Um, the point I was trying to make is that he had his, uh, a variegated uh, tzibor, and in certain respects, there was a, just a, a constant bitter Chinuch war. But you couldn't express the Chinuch war in public, political, violent terms. And so if you had Robin Kovda, you just have to put up with a situation that there would be a lot of what we call Tarbut schools out there, but also you try your best to make as many Yavna schools out there. And hopefully, the best kids from the Yavna, you hope, the boys... Somehow you steer them to the yeshivas. That's how life was lived in the 1920s and 30s. Were they successful? The answer is they were somewhat successful. Uh, there certainly was a firm element in uh, Lithuania, and there certainly was a, a yeshiva movement headquartered in Slobodka and Tels, I would say, and the lesser degree in Punovich, which really undertook to try to be to, to reconquer the Kehillahs to the best that they could. And anybody who was a dynamic rabbi, not everybody's a Panovich rabbi, you know, then it was a dynamic rabbi with tribes to uh, uh, create a, a school in his community. So it's a little bit like we had in America with the term, sorry, you know, uh, that you uh, try to spread the word through uh, schools. This is really where the the, what shall I say, the culture of, uh, of spreading chinuch as much as possible uh, really emerged from this kind of environment in which it was all about, you know, which will be the future direction of the chinuch. And, uh, you know, I can't say either one triumphed over the other. And there was a big Tarbut school system, and there was a big uh, Yavna school system. The Tarbut was bigger, the Yavna was growing, but, you know, we'll never know, because it's all tragic, Everybody, Hitler came and killed everybody. I mean, that, that that's what happened. Hitler just came and killed everybody. At the same time, the Rov was... Uh, connecting with the, um, what's it called, with the uh, Slobodka she because Slobodka is in Kovna. It's, it's, I was there, you know, it's, it's just over the bridge. I mean, it's it's part of town. And uh, it's a suburb, but I mean, it's 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 right there. And uh, obviously, that means that Kovna, which is the center of the Zionism, and the center of the Haskalah, because it sure was, and the center of Ivrit and all the rest of it, no question about it. And these dynamic uh, Hebrew teachers, you know, not from... Was also the center of Yeshiva, you know, and uh, the uh, I know from Rabbi Ruderman, who was Rashiva in Eretz Yisrael, of course, right? Again, my Rashiva, that uh, that what Slabodka did was send some of its best guys who were to learn with one on one or like a special chabura with the Kavan Rab, with the Dvar Ram. That's how Rabbi Ruderman learned his uh, rabbinus, because in Yeshiva you don't learn the Yeshiva, you just learn the Lamdes. How Had he learned halacha stuff? Had he learned how to paskin? how Had he learned how to run a how Had he learned basically how to hold them and fold them and the rabbi and learned it and he's not the only one but he's the one i know from the devar rum was a big student of his, and devar encouraged him to publish the safer anybody has come on and all that sort of thing and uh it's a perfect example of how the devarum tried to uh mentor uh young uh success you know uh iluim uh, in the yeshiva world in the hope that they'll be the rabbinic leaders of the future some will be rabbis some will be rasha shivas like robert was russia but uh, this was always something very uh, unusual. Uh, that's not the right word, but uh, uh, something interesting about Rabbi Ruderman, that he, you know, he not only learned the yeshiva stuff from Slobatka and all that, but he also learned the rabbi stuff. And he was in Baltimore here, Rabbi Nishul, for X number of years in order to start the yeshiva going, starting in the 1930s. And uh, I don't say he loved it, but on the other hand, it was a characteristic of his, I would say, looking back, that, like the Dvar Ram, he always knew how to, um, what's the right word, to walk the tightrope and get along with Balabatim, while not allowing them, you know, to affect the yeshiva. Uh, and uh, this means he was very uh, diplomatic, but diplomatic while you're in pursuit of a higher ideal. It's not just a matter of being diplomatic. And that's how Near Israel took off, you know, over the course of many decades. That's how uh, Baltimore became the city that it is. So the influence of Dvar kind of expresses itself in my own community, in this interesting way, because of uh, the Ashbab Rabbi Ruderman. And uh, also, again, very careful not to exacerbate um, what's the right word? Relations between the Agurah and Mizrahi, even though he himself was Agurah. And same thing with the Dvarav, he himself was Agurah. But I can't convey to you how powerful the uh, Zionism was, and uh, secular Hebrew culture was in those years, in a way that it's not today. Today it's an you know it's a, it's a, it's a empty ship like somebody said you know a, you can't talk about any vibrant uh, ideology of Zionism and of cultural Zionism, secular Zionism today it doesn't exist but it did then and the reason is simple we're talking about the uh, I'm I'm confining my remarks to the twenties and the thirties in those years before the Second World War everybody could tell who you're smart that there's no real future for the Jews in Europe. Take Lithuania, for example. You have people called the Litvak, the Lithuanians. They're their own ethnic group. Uh, they didn't like the Jews being there. The Jews were brought back in the 1400s, by the noblemen who ran the country who didn't give a hoot what the local Lithuanians thought. And so if you're a Lithuanian, non-Jew, in the 20s and 30s, you say like this, why do I want that all the doctors and the lawyers and the big stores should be owned by Jews? They're not Lithuanians. But if I just do it on the basis of a meritocracy then the Jews, because they're just smarter, you know. Will, will take over everything. So it's a little bit like saying, I don't want all the Asians getting all the good jobs in America just because they work harder because they're not American, and, you know, if, if you had that kind of mentality. And therefore, the handwriting was kind of on the wall. that Lithuania did not want the Jews there. Then they weren't killing anybody in the 20s and 30s. That came later. But you can see it's not good. And uh, i am tell my father grew up exactly at that time, in the 20s and 30s in Lithuania. And even if you were a successful business person as he was, the government was always trying to do shtick, which I totally understand, to take the businesses away, if possible, from the Jews, and somehow rather transfer, uh, transfer them to Lithuanian goyim. And, uh, by the way, intermarriage was not a problem, because the Lithuanian Gentiles were very into racial purity. They didn't want to marry Jews. So it worked both ways. Uh, but, on the other hand, so what's your future? You're a young person, you're going to school, you're getting an education. Long term, it's not going to be good over here. And this was true all through Eastern Europe. The anti-Semitism was building up in some countries more virulently, in other countries less so, but it was all in the same direction towards increasing anti-Semitism. And so what's the future? Now, I don't say people saw Hitler coming, but they saw something like that, something not good in the future. So what's the plan? Now, um, look here. If uh, you're um, a, a socialist or a Marxist, then you dream of a better world. Uh, you'll introduce communism or some variation of Marxism, and you believe, at least, that that'll put away with all anti Semitism and other racial differences, and that will be the solution. I'm living now in a time of anti Semitism, but by the time my children come along, we'll be post anti Semitism. Of course, you'll also be post-Judaism, but the type of Jews into socialism and Marxism probably doesn't care that much about it. Um, let's say you're a Zionist. Well, uh, today is banned in Lithuania, but tomorrow will be a state of Israel. That's what everybody figured. The Balfour Declaration was 1917. Jews already started moving in the 20s and 30s. They didn't know what you and I know today, that only a small portion of Jews will move there, and the 6 million would get killed in Europe. They were hoping that in the 20s or the 30s or the 40s, Will be built a state of Israel and then we'll all move there and it'll be perfect. So I'm living now in Lithuania, for example, and I'm getting whatever education I'm getting. And I have a, you know, an uh, economic position, you know, a, a store, uh, a profession or whatever. Uh, but don't worry, tomorrow, me or my kids will live a normal life, not in Lithuania. Let the Lich Fox live in Lithuania. We'll move to Palestine. We'll live in, in the state of Israel. No, words, that was a realistic uh, hope. Uh, and that's why everybody from and not from, we're, were were very longing for Zionism. You know, at least it's a way out. Now, let's say you're a Gura. Let's say you're, you're just a Haredi. What's the future? You don't have a future. Meaning, you say like this, trust in God. Uh, things should go in the way they are, uh, always. And uh, we should build more yeshivas and more cheders and more uh, institutions of Torah learning. And Gamaru. But what about the fact that all around you, the guy am getting worse and worse all the time, slowly but surely? Handle that. The reason I'm sharing this with you is that if you were a young person, male or female, living at that time in the 1920s or 30s in those areas, it doesn't sound like the Harenim have a program. On the other hand, the Zionists do. Hence the intense attraction of Zionism uh, of one form or another among the young. And I can tell you right now, the Dvar children were affected by this because he had, I don't know, five or six kids. And the uh, two of them I know for sure. Listen to this. The, 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 I, the, I said there were two schools. The Yavna schools, that was the from the Tarbut schools, that was the secular Zionist. Well, guess who was the head of the Tarbut schools? His son, the son of the Uh Now, was he uh, Shem or Shabbos? Altar? I don't know. I've never been able to ascertain that. Maybe he was. In other words, maybe he was religiously observant. But Ashkafically, he certainly was not. He was a... Uh, He wrote books on the history of Jewish literature, Chaim Nachman Shapiro. He was a a big mach over there. He actually went and got a PhD, I think, in the University of Vienna. This is Sanit Ravram. And uh, was a professor of Jewish studies or something like that in the University of Kovna, which he obviously must have intended. I mean, I know how these people think. They saw the future in non-yeshiva terms. Uh, They were idealists in their way, and they saw the future in in making Judaism relevant, as we say today, within the context of modern culture. Uh, now, Hitler wiped all that in and today's just episode. Nobody even knows what I just told you, if I didn't tell you. He had another son, Noah, who also was uh, something like that. He was a, a scientist, or I forget exactly what it was. You can find that if you really care. Uh, so, And he had a daughter who also was a, a doctor, a scientist. I'm just trying to tell you, if if even the biggest and their children felt this pull, you, it gives you an idea of how powerful it was. And also it helps to explain, in my opinion, why in the 1920s and 30s, uh, I know the Devar of Rum was like this, there was a big, uh, how should I put it? It was a very interesting movement. Is it possible to make peace between the Algon and the Mizrahi? Now, it never happened in the end. But there were constant uh, negotiations uh, all throughout the 1920s and 30s this is just very interesting, not so many people know about this to figure out is there some way that uh, all the from can combine now there are always two uh, dynamics, one pushing for Pirud and uh, ideological purity on the one hand and one pushing for the opposite of Pirud, you know like uh, right? which is combining the Nine Seyachtas, Ichud which is combining uh, different forms into one. These are two, um, you know, powerful dynamics, and they're just existential. They'll never go away. We live in a world in which, on the one hand, we have a, a, a pushing for period and one pushing for Ehud. And uh, all during the 1920s and 30s, as I said before, there were those, shall I say, on the left wing of the Aguda and on the right wing of the Mizrahi. You hear what I just said? The left wing of the right wing of Mizrahi, who wanted that somehow or other they should combine into one, which is a little bit of what you had in Lithuania. Now, it wasn't successful over there, because everybody was suspicious of Yadra. I'm going to spare all the Lashon horror. You could read what I wrote if you want to know all that. But uh, that's one of the reasons why they, uh, they, they shot themselves in the foot in the elections. But nevertheless, you can hear what I'm saying. A left-wing, a, good, a person. I'm talking about him, And a right-wing Mizrahi. Very, very close. Right? Very, very close. And, uh, and Meiser ran the show. He was in, in Poland, and there were times when they were uh, close, but it never happened, because uh, basically the Mizrahi could not agree to the requirements of the Agudah. That's that's what kind of boiled down to, um, because at that time the Zionist movement was moving to the left, as uh, you if you know the history of Zionism, and you know the the Agudah couldn't ha- you know couldn't have it that uh, you know that they should be combined with people who 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 do not reject you know the the uh, in principle you know the Mahalikha the Zionist movement as opposed to the Mizrahi position of saying we don't support their anti from stuff, but we are in principle committed to, to Zionists. it's a it's, uh, it's tricky. I recall that uh the main person pushing this from the Zionist perspective was um, the Marcheshes, uh, who was a dying in the basin of Rebbe Chaim Meiser, and uh, Rabbi Amil in Antwerp, who later was in Tel Aviv. Uh, Rabbi Amil was a big uh, Mizrahi guy, and he was a Talmud member of Chaim uh, And on the other hand, from the other side, if I, as, as I recall it, I think I have this right, the Dvar of Rum was the big one pushing for this. Because in his own family, you saw this all around you. If you could figure some way for the Frum forces to unite, if... If, if, from force to unite, they felt it would be better for everybody. You know, there'd be one uh, Chazit Datid, as they later on called it in Israel, which in the developed. Now, in the course of time, this has not happened. In the world you and I live in, this has not happened. Instead, you have two independent parallel streams. You have the Yagod on the one hand, and you have the Mizrahi on the other. They're kind of, kind of parallel, but each, but they're different, okay? and At the end of the day, there's a whole separate world of Kippah, for example, the one hand, and this a whole place where we called say, Black Hat but I mean, I get it. Uh, now, but at the Balabatim level, it's interesting to me, at least in Baltimore, to see a lot of the young people, the people who grew up in my time were very, uh, my age, were more into the uh, Pirud thing uh, because of historical circumstances. But my children's generation looks to me like they're more interested in um, if there could be some kind of Ichud together because you see a lot of young people who are, uh, I'll, I'll use the word black hatters. Uh, but in other words, they're very pro, de facto, they're Zionists. I mean, they, they will not use those words. But, uh, you know, de facto, they're very, very pro-Israel. And if there'd be some way to uh, bring it about, uh, you know, they would like it. On the other hand, they are black hatters, like I said before. So it's funny, you see this in Baltimore. I actually had a guy, who was, it? I forget his name, who he visited here in Baltimore uh, Marwick sent to me, uh, I forget his name, he was from Chevron, Not she was Hebron, but the town of Chevron, the yeshiva area. He was a, a kippasrugah guy, and uh, very intense. And he was uh, very bewildered in Baltimore. He said, I see, you know, you have uh, uh, synagogues here, the people are all dressed like a gutta, but they're very pro-Zionist. And I said, that's Baltimore and a lot of other places like that, that are not Zionist in the sense that they agree with anything that's anti-from or non-from about the state of Israel, something about Zionism, but I think people today are like Paul Borah Zionism is one thing, and, it, and the state of Israel is another thing. Uh, and here you have the Dvar a century ago, trying to think in those kind of terms. I don't know, I, well, all I can say is it's interesting to me. Uh, so if you combine this together, it's just a very uh, you know, impressive person. He came to America a couple of times. Uh, as I said before, with Rav Cook and uh, Moshe Mordecai Epstein and people like that, raising money, and he made a big impression. You read all the newspaper accounts uh, because he was the glory of the rabbin. He knew how to carry himself with a big dignity. He was obviously a great speaker. There is a sefer from Rabbi Bach. I don't even look at it too much. Called the Speeches of the Dvar Rabban Dvarab. and I saw one that sticks in mind where he gave a, a speech to a convention of base Yaakov or the girls about the idea of Taras Mishpacha and things like that. You see, he really knew how to uh, speak to the right audience. He was a great talker because you wouldn't have been a Rav in a town like, I mean, a large community like Kovna if in addition to the Lambdas, you also weren't a very good uh, uh, Darshan. In Yiddish, obviously. Uh, I don't think he himself ever learned Lithuanian. I doubt it. Uh, very few of the Rabbanu tried to do del- Pone- it. Try- try- was in the parliament and he tried to speak Lithuanian, but, <laughs> but he... He, didn't, he couldn't really do it. And there's a whole long story there. I'll leave that alone. Uh, so this is just a world of yesteryear. Now, um, in the, it's, it's late, so I want to bring this to a conclusion. Uh, he, he had a heroic death because he had uh, health problems and he was in Switzerland when the Second World War began. There were a number of gadolim that were in Switzerland on vacation because World War II began at the end of August, beginning of September. So, there, and the people used to go to Switzerland for the cool air and the clean air. So, uh, he was in Switzerland when the war began. He had a son who was a lawyer, the driver of about, he had a son who was a lawyer in New York. I believe he was a from guy. who was connected with Dr. Revel. And he wanted to get the father over. He says, you know, the war just broke out. Come to America, come to New York, and work for Hatzala and whatever in New York. There are other people, Godole who survived the war that way, because they hadn't been in the right place at the right time. Uh, Ronald H. Steinman, that's how he survived the war. He was in Switzerland. Uh, Isaac Scherer, I believe, also was the same business. That uh, you know, he, he was in Switzerland when the war broke out, and he said, I'm not going back. And he devoted the rest of his life to trying to uh, you know, rebuild Slobacca and all that. Uh, but the Devar of Rome said like this, the captain goes down with the ship. It's a famous case. In other words, he did the same thing that and Wasserman did. They knew they are going back to their death, but they went back to Kovna. Of course, when he went back, Lithuania was a neutral country in 1939. But it didn't take too long before Stalin took over in 1940. And then a year later, Hitler came in. And then it was a doom. Because, uh, so he could have, I'm just trying to say like this. He was a noble and heroic person because he says the captain's going down with the ship. Uh, And believe you me, uh, what was it like to be a Rov of a Kehillah, especially the number one rabbi in Lithuania, in the Holocaust when you're in the Kovne ghetto and you have shilas like you never want to have because there you really end up saying a situation, mi yechia, mi you know, Germans had a, a Judenrat and you know, the Nazis were unbelievably sadistic in Lithuania, more than even than elsewhere, and uh, if you want to find stories of the Tvar the terrible stories and and and, and decisions he had to make in the years 1941, 42, until his death in 43. look at Ushri, you know, the Mimamakim. You know what I'm talking about. The shaz of Mimamakim. In which uh, he was there in Kovna, the author of the And he talks about cases, uh, which are horrible cases. You know what I mean? Because people were getting killed every once in a while. And, you know, should you give one up to save two? And do you hand anybody over? All bets were off. And they say that he wrote a whole treatise. His son writes it, you know, in the third volume of the On Agunas. Because he said, can you imagine the Agunas situation? Now, I tell you the truth. So he wrote a whole treatise and, and was, uh, it was destroyed. In other words, it was buried with him or something like that. Never happened. He wanted to figure out a way to save the Agunas. Can you imagine uh, there were no Argunas Because everybody got killed. You got to say, worst possible situation. He was worried about women in Kovna and Lithuania and other towns. That The husband was gone. They don't know where they are and how can the wife remarry. Well, by the time the story's over, you know, 99% of these people were simply murdered. That's, that's what it is. It's a, it's a big tragedy. Now, he himself was not killed by the Germans. He died of an illness uh, a little before the time the Germans came and shot the rest of his family. So, you know, at least he had a burial. You know what I mean? No, At least he died under, shall I say, nonviolent circumstances. But not really. It was a, it, 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 Think about the tragic um, dimensions of this person where he had being a rabbi since 1913 he had seen the rabbinate under trying times but at its glory as it were and when he was in Lithuania, when he was a chief rabbi of the country an international reputation he saw the rabbinate's glory and then he saw you know uh the murder and it wasn't an overnight murder it was a slow steady business in which the germans took out another group and killed them, and then another group and shot them and then another group and so on and so forth and, you know, he had to live through uh, all that uh, stuff. And the sadism, I don't, I don't feel like going into it. If you're interested in whatsoever, this is a subject for Yom HaShoah, you know what I mean? If you look up Devar of Rome and Yom HaShoah, you'll probably see a bunch of sholos and questions of the worst sort that, that somebody should have to deal with. But on the other hand, he, he, he dealt with it. So uh, this is how he perished. And with him went down the whole li- 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 Lithuanian jury because very few of them, survived the war. My father was one of the few, uh, but very few uh, survived in the war, especially in Kaunas in, in and Kovna. And after the war Stalin, Stalin, there's nothing to talk about. So he left behind his farm. He left behind the Talmudim, but uh, uh, you, know, uh, from, uh, you know, from the community, all the rest of it, it was all uh, uh, exterminated. So that's, that's what I mean when he said he had the right kind of death. I mean in the sense he had a heroic death. He didn't have the right kind of death, he had a heroic death. Because remember, he could have saved himself. And if I remember correctly, um, uh, Dr. Revel in Y.U., really who knew him, because uh, Devar Rum had been in uh, in America a couple times, and uh, and he gave a share in Y.U. and all the rest of it. He was a good friend of Dr. Revel's. And uh, I remember he said, by the way, Rabbi Ruderman came to America, I'm just remembering, in 1930, company, he and his wife accompanied the Devar Rum. You know, He came to speak to the Guru's Ravunam Convention, and somehow they schlepped him. That's how he, he didn't sneak him into America because it wasn't uh, illegal, but he kind of snuck him into America. Uh, and that's how Rabbi Ritter made it to this country. And I remember also, now that I'm speaking about it, if you look in that book by, uh, what's his name? Who wrote about Blazer Silver uh, uh, Rakefet, right? Uh, so I remember he has interesting speech uh, where he spoke in 1930, It goes to one of me, I know how hard it is in America. You get cynical, uh, you can't make a living unless you do uh, tricks with kashrus. It was very. Let me put it this way: the 20s and 30s was not a great time to be a rabbi in America in most places, you know. That, and frankly, neither was the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. You know, after the 70s, there's a new uh, sociological reality. So he knew the score. Okay, he knew how the world's operating, but he gave it his best shot. I think I've spoken long enough. As I say before, ordinarily I won't go into this level of detail. And there's a lot I, I, I skimmed over. Uh, but we're all stuck here in the coronavirus situation. So hopefully it'll be over soon. And then this will just be a, a time piece. And they say, oh, look at the long uh, uh, talk cats gave back at the time when time didn't matter so much because people were stuck in their houses in the, uh, in the corona situation. Bye-bye.